In the early 20th century, you could make a strong claim that Germany was the leading country on Earth. Their scientists and artists were the envy of the world. Enlightenment ideals of reason and progress dominated. The bourgeois class was flourishing, and Germany's industrialized economy was the strongest in Europe. Life was good, or so it seemed. In the midst of this apparent golden age, darker forces of nationalism and class resentment were brewing beneath the surface. In addition, a tuberculosis pandemic had a firm grip on Europe and the United States. On average, one in seven people died from tuberculosis in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The German author Thomas Mann used this pandemic as the backdrop for his 1924 novel, The Magic Mountain. Mann was a great novelist because he took fairly modern techniques, sort of slightly experimental techniques, but he applied them to the major issues of his time, to the problem of to what degree can we believe in rationality, to the problem of self-interest and love and lust and desire and how they blind our search for truth, to the problem of death. It's very encyclopedic. It sort of covers everything in the world, um, and it covers it in a, a sort of funny, ironic way, but it's a very, very deep novel, and it it's really merits rereading. So uh, my name is Pericles Lewis. I'm a comparative literature professor at Yale University. The novel is set in a sanatorium for tuberculosis patients high up in the Swiss Alps. The main character, Hans Kastorp, initially went up to the sanitarium to visit his cousin who was being treated there. But while visiting, Hans himself fell sick and ended up staying in the sanatorium with his cousin for the next seven years. But the thing about the sanatorium is they're not doing anything else. They're just thinking about death all the time. And so that makes death a little bit more real for them. It makes life a little bit less real for them because they don't have jobs. They don't have much to do with their time. So it's like being on a constant vacation. And imagine a, a whole life that was just being on vacation. It wouldn't be very meaningful. Uh, so it's that sense that with nothing else to do, they worry about death. They worry about love and lust and flirting with one another. And they try and figure out philosophies that make the whole world meaningful, but they discover that none of these philosophies really works in a society that's sort of teetering on the brink. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Pericles Lewis to discuss Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. Could you give us a portrait of this author, his formative experiences, his background, and what you think led to the insight to write a book like this? He was a uh, you know fairly traditional German writer from a wealthy family, a merchant family in the north of Germany. Uh, but his mother was Brazilian, so he always uh, was a little bit out of the norm in that way in, in Germany in the late 19th century. Thomas Mann was born in 1875 in Lübeck, Germany. He studied literature, art history, and economics at Ludwig Maximilians University of Munich and the Technical University of Munich. After his schooling, Mann got a job at the South German Fire Insurance Company, where he stayed for about a year. He began writing for a satirical weekly magazine called Simplicimus and published his first story in 1898. Mann continued writing and published several short stories before branching out into novels, essays, and novellas. Early in his career, he wrote a great realist novel about 19th century German families called Buddenbrooks. Uh, and then just before the First World War, he wrote one of his greatest stories, Death in Venice, 
which is about the cholera plague hitting Venice, but it's also about uh, the the love or lust that uh, an aging artist has for a young boy that he meets in Venice. Um, Mon himself was gay, but he was married and he had children and so on. And so he, he struggled with his homosexuality, and that's a theme in a lot of his books. Um, the Magic Mountain comes in a period – he started writing it before the First World War. It took him 12 years to finish it. So even though it's a seven-year plot, it took even longer than that to write the book. And uh, he finished it in 1924, which is the height of what we call modernism, sort of a movement to write more experimental novels that e explore the mind, the unconscious, that kind of topic. Uh, and later in his life, he wrote even more, ever more symbolic uh, novels that uh, ranged across the whole of German and European culture. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize in 1929. During World War I, Mann supported Germany's conservative emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II. But in the early 1920s, he shifted his support to the German Democratic Party and the Social Democrats. Over the next decade, he was a vocal opponent to the Nazi Party. Mann gave lectures and wrote essays that attacked Nazism and urged the working class in Germany to resist the Nazi Party. This made him a target for the Nazis when they rose to power in 1933. Germany was no longer safe for Mann. He wound up coming to the United States. He refused to answer questions about communists, and uh, so he was seen as a communist sympathizer, but he was really more of a mainstream liberal uh, for most of his life. Uh, and he never moved back to Germany after, after leaving around the time that Hitler came to power. World War I and II left much of Europe in ruins. But before the wars, Europe was at the height of its influence and prestige as a center for art, science, and culture. But these successes weren't enjoyed by everyone. The bourgeoisie were prospering, but the working classes were struggling and resentful. What were the social forces driving that suspicion of bourgeois Victorian stability? Um, what became untenable? Like, and what you know, what was behind those changes? Certainly, rapid industrialization and the changes in employment that that resulted in secularization and loss of sense of connection to a particular faith, those were very important. I think political causes were also pretty uh, preeminent in, in the teens and 20s and 30s. That is, uh, the old governments that tended to be empires ruled by kings and queens and emperors were falling apart. Uh, nationalistic movements were trying to instead create uh, societies that were based on, you know, people who are like each other living together. And so all these old empires were falling apart. But nationalism is a pretty powerful and dangerous kind of force. And it can have productive qualities to it, but it can also be very destructive. So you saw that destructiveness in the First World War. In the 20s, when Mann was writing this, a lot of nationalist movements were pressing their claims and, and ultimately resulting in the rise of fascism. And of course, the Second World War was not not very far off. So I think the um, the immediate political problems of an old order that couldn't keep up with the modern industrial world after the First World War are probably the biggest cause of that that feeling of une uncertainty and unease. Also feeding into this unease was the tuberculosis pandemic that paralyzed both Europe and the United States. Tuberculosis is caused by a bacterium. 
uh, but it spreads very easily. And even today, last year it killed 1.4 million people in the developing world. So it's still a very serious disease. It is treatable if you catch it, if you if you identify it quickly enough. But the problem is, in large parts of the world, people don't, and they don't get the treatment. So in, at this time, in, in the uh, teens and 20s of the last century in Europe, it was still a pretty serious problem in the wealthier parts of the world. There were no antibiotics for tuberculosis at the time, so treatments included bleedings, rest, exercise, and a good diet. In certain parts of Europe, a common treatment was to take patients to a sanatorium up in the mountains where they could isolate themselves from the general public. Tuberculosis infects a person's lungs, so the belief was that being up in the mountains where the air was a bit thinner and a bit cleaner would help one recover faster. Mann and his wife visited a sanatorium in Davos, Switzerland, a few years before World War I. This became the setting for the Magic Mountain. Now, the thing about this novel is most of the people don't recover. Most of them wind up dying, but that takes over a course of seven years. Many of them last the whole seven years, but a lot of them just gradually fall off and die. So it's a bit... Although the novel was inspired by a visit to an actual tuberculosis sanatorium, it's also a little bit of an allegory for European culture right before the First World War. That is, there's all these people who have leisure. They're sort of bourgeois, upper-middle-class people who have income. They don't have much to do, and they just sit around and they bicker. They have love affairs. They have arguments about philosophy, about death, and gradually, one by one, they drop off and die. And so it's a pretty sad picture of European culture at the beginning, just before the First World War. And in a way, it might be an allegory for how did the war happen uh, because you have this culture that they th seems the most advanced and enlightened, and then it leads to the worst war in history up until that time. Would you give us a basic plot summary Basically, Kastorp comes up into the mountains to visit his cousin, Joachim, who's a uh, soldier, and he's got tuberculosis. And he thinks, oh, well, Joachim will get better soon, and then we'll go back home. But Joachim doesn't get better, and what happens is that Hans, Hans Kastorp, the main character, gets sick himself. And he doesn't believe it at first when they tell him, but gradually accepts that he has tuberculosis too. The chief doctor and director of the sanatorium is a man named Dr. Behrens. Second-in-command is a man named Dr. Krakowski. Dr. Behrens encourages the patients not to move around too much and just try to rest and recover. And that's just what Hans and Joachim do. So the two of them are stuck there. Ultimately, Hans stays for seven years. They have to take their temperature every day. They have to lie still. And then they go and have meals, several meals a day, breakfast, second breakfast, lunch, tea, dinner. They just eat a lot at these seven tables. And if you've ever stayed at a nice hotel where there's like a buffet-style food, it's a little bit like that. They just sit at these seven tables. There's the, the tables are almost organized by nationality. There's a table that's the good Russian table for the fancy people from Russia. And then there's the table called the bad Russian table that's the table for the not-so-nice people from Russia. And over seven years, Hans rotates among these seven tables, and he meets all the people from all the different countries and talks with them, and he tries to figure out a philosophy of life, but the problem is he's not a very smart guy. So there's a big distance between the narrator, who's Thomas Mann, who knows everything, and Hans Kostorp, who's this very limited kind of guy who doesn't quite understand when he's having a conversation with Behrens about how bacteria work or when he's having a conversation with Krakowski about psychoanalysis, he can't quite follow a lot of the conversations. And so for 700 pages, you're reading all of these funny, interesting conversations that go back to the history of ideas, but a lot of it is 
people arguing about what's causing the problems in Europe at this time uh, of, in history. Towards the end of the story, Hans's cousin Joachim decides he's had enough of the sanatorium. He heads down the mountain to rejoin his military unit, despite his illness. In fact, he goes against medical advice, has to come back up to the uh, sanatorium, and he dies pretty quickly after that. So for the last couple hundred pages, um, Hans is alone at the top of the mountain, and his cousin is gone. One of the beautiful, very final scenes, they con conduct a seance to try and get back in touch with Joachim's spirit. This is, again, one of those things that Krakowski is really into. Along with psychoanalysis comes the idea of the occult and getting in contact with the dead and all of that. Uh, and they actually do contact his cousin Joachim, but then he realizes that they shouldn't be messing with these dark forces, and, and Hans feels terribly, terribly guilty. And in the end, the war breaks out, and Hans, who was not supposed to be a soldier, he was supposed to be an engineer, joins the army, he becomes a soldier, and in the very last scene of the novel, you see him fighting in one of those terrible battles of the First World War in which there's mud and guts and blood and trenches, and you can tell, it doesn't really tell what's going to happen to him, but you just see the beginning of that massive death that was the First World War right at the end of the novel. So it's a very, very bleak ending. Throughout the novel, Mann uses several characters to illustrate some of the main ideas that were circulating Europe at the time. One of these characters is the psychoanalyst Dr. Krakowski, second-in-command at the sanatorium. And he's the one who says that organic causes are always secondary, which is to say that nothing is caused by illness or bacteria or viruses. It's all caused by something in your mind. And he really believes that tuberculosis and all the other problems of the world are mental problems. And so a solution to that is psychoanalysis. And he's come into my room and we'll talk about all your feelings and then you'll maybe someday get better. Only nobody actually does get better because, in fact, tuberculosis is a real disease. It's not caused by psychological disturbances. Um, and yet, in a way, Krakowski has a point because there are all these psychological disturbances going around in the culture, and Krakowski sort of, the x-ray machine is a symbol of that. He sort of sees inside of people and sees the lust or the death wishes or the greed that motivates people and that nobody wants to talk about on the surface. Uh, so a very memorable character. Other ideologies were competing for prominence at the time. Hans Kostorp and his cousin Joachim represent two of them, the lazy bourgeoisie, and the dutiful citizen. So early on, uh, Hans is diagnosed as being one of life's problem children, meaning that he doesn't quite fit in right. And all through the novel, the narrator will keep referring to him as one of life's problem children. And in different ways, it indicates to you that Hans hasn't quite figured it all out, you know. And then by contrast, Joachim, his cousin, the soldier, is a model of duty. He wants to go back and serve his country, uh, he wants to be healthy again. Hans seems to almost enjoy being sick because it gives him an excuse for not working and for just lying around. Uh, but Joachim really wants to get back and and be of service. And so there's that strong sense of duty. So that's another one of those contrasting pairs. Then there was humanism and radicalism. Humanists believed in the ideas of rational thought and progress, emphasized by the Enlightenment. This fundamentally optimistic ideology is represented by a character named Settembrini. He believes in world peace and that all the nations will come together, and he's a foe of all religion. His opponent is a man named Nafta, who represents radicalism. 
Nafta is Jewish, but he's also a Jesuit. He He's sort of converted to Catholicism. He was taken under the wings of the Jesuits. Uh, and he's also a revolutionary, a sort of a communist revolutionary. And he's basically pessimistic about everything. He thinks that the Enlightenment is going to fail. He sees correctly that there's going to be a war. Uh, he believes that human humans are basically evil and sinful. Uh, and even though I think the funny thing about it is that Thomas Mann is more of a liberal progressive kind of guy. And in that sense, his sympathies might be with Settembrini. He also has this undertow of awareness of all the dark forces in the world. And so in that sense, Nafta turns out to be right more often than Settembrini does. How much of the power of the book is, in your in your view, a kind of sense of foreboding, that prophetic quality that you know, something horrific is going to come and, and that, you know, that kind of that deep understanding that reason can't account for this, like there's something darker. Yeah, I think it's really that struggle between reason, which tries to solve problems and this sense of foreboding, as you say, are all the irrational forces that are constantly pushing forward. And that goes back to Nietzsche, the idea that underneath rationality, there are actually all these irrational forces, the desire for power, the desire for control, lust, all of those kinds of things. And Mann is really a man of the Enlightenment who believes in uh, reason, rationality, and so on. But he also knows that it's constantly being undercut by all those other forces. I also think this is part of uh, just being in history is you don't know where it's going to go in the future. And that's what novels, especially novels like The Magic Mountain, are great at showing you is that experience of being in the process of, of time resulting from history and not knowing what the future is going to hold. So there are these competing uh, predictions in the novel. There's the prediction that, okay, it'll all be all right and we'll have peace and people will get together, there will be harmony, everyone will, every country will become a liberal democracy and so on. And on the other side, there's the no, there's sin and fear and hatred are going to dominate and ultimately there's going to be a cataclysm. And of course, he knew by the time he finished the novel that there had been one cataclysm, but he also saw an even worse one, the Second World War coming on the horizon. So why is it called the Magic Mountain? Underlying everything is this sense of mystical forces that's making everything happen and also a sense of tapping into an unconscious that none of us has real control of. And there is this kind of feeling about the whole thing that there's that the unconscious is not just one person's unconscious, but it's this sort of collective force that we're tapping into. And I think that might be part of why it's called the Magic Mountain is that up in that mountain, you get connected to these magical forces that in normal life you don't pay any attention to. So I'd love to understand its place in literary history. What are the key themes for you, or at least the themes that you think are most magnetic? This is definitely a modern or modernist novel in the sense that it doesn't have a very conventional plot. You know, the story could be told in 30 seconds. And in, even then you say, well, what happened? There's almost in a way very little happens. And instead, there are these extended philosophical and psychological discussions there's this wonderful chapter called Snow in which he gets lost in the snow and he has all these mystical, magical visions. He thinks he's been out all night and then it turns out he's only been gone for about 15 minutes. But he's had a, a year's worth of magical visions during those 15 minutes of a snowstorm. Uh, so it's this, it is this symbolic sense that in every action, whether it's skiing in a snowstorm, certainly having an affair, even sit, deciding where to sit, for at which table to sit at for dinner, 
uh, there, there are all these unexpressed symbolic and magical qualities that uh, Mon is trying to communicate to us. I also mentioned the irony in the, the narrator. The narrator is constantly calling attention to the fact that the novel exists in time. And I love to read it in terms of what is the purpose of a work of art. And novels in particular, even more than music, are about experiencing the passage of time. That's another reason I like to reread it every once in a while. You're living with the characters for the time that you read it. And even though it's a really long book, it doesn't take seven years to read. So if you spend a month reading it, you're experiencing seven years of this very interesting, now to us, foreign culture from 100 years ago, and you're experiencing it as part of your own life. So sometimes, you know, when you're watching a great, TV series or reading a great novel, um, or maybe if you've been to see a play or something like that, you start to think about it in your own life. And that, it's that kind of novel that sort of gives you insight into what it is to be alive, what it is to experience time, ultimately what it is to die. I'd love to know a little bit more about modernism as a, as a literary movement. What was it trying to do, this collection of artists? Well, so there's four great novelists who wrote in this same period. There are many, many, but four that I can think of that really wrote about the consequences of the First World War. Uh, so James Joyce, in Ulysses, he doesn't ever talk about the First World War. Ulysses is had in 1904, but he wrote it starting during the First World War. Proust, whose Remembrance of Things Past is another one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, started his novel before the war and started with the story of his childhood in the 19th century, but the very long novel ends up after the war. He was still revising it when he died in 1922. And then Virginia Woolf's greatest novel, I think, is To the Lighthouse, which is about a childhood before the war and then coming back to the same house after the war and how it's changed as the result of deaths of certain major characters in the novel. And what I think these four novelists had in common is they were experiencing the very rapid transition of our society at the beginning of the 20th century. So it wasn't just the war. They were certainly very aware of the war and how many people had died in it. But it was also all the changes in culture. Uh, Virginia Woolf said that on or about December 1910, human nature changed. And it's just that feeling that the world isn't the way it used to be. And they're all looking back at a certain well-ordered 19th century bourgeois, what we would call Victorian world, the way it's been transformed. And they're trying to get beyond the traditional novel that represents, in their view, a sort of a decorous world in which social relations are relatively well established and can be easily traced, and instead get into something deeper, tapping into the unconscious, tapping into psychological motives that might not be apparent, trying to describe character in depth and not focusing as much on plot. So as a result, they wrote novels that are actually pretty challenging to read. These are all some of the famously most difficult novels of the 20th century, as well as the greatest. And uh, they, they were sort of challenging the reader. They were saying, if you want to really understand things, I'm not going to tell you a simple story. I'm going to delve in and, and show you things that you haven't noticed before, show you what lies beneath the surface. Let's discuss its afterlife. So what would be the story of its kind of longer influence on, you know, global culture, Western culture? Mann became very distinguished and famous because he was a German opponent of Hitler and for his broadcasts on the BBC in which he criticized the Nazi regime. Uh, so he became a sort of elder statesman of literature. And I think the Nobel Prize partly recognized that and partly made that possible. Uh, 
the novel itself, I think if you think of uh, the the films of the 60s and 70s that uh, like the new wave in cinema, films that looked at the psycho- psychological and the unconscious and so on, there's often a little bit of an echo of Thomas Mann there. He had a great eye and a great ear and he could describe a world that was sort of dissolving. Also, I think the gay theme was sort of important because he was one of those interesting writers who investigated sexuality seemingly from a very bourgeois perspective but actually suggesting a lot of things that lay beneath the surface. Um, You know, I think of the great writers who write about many generations like Gabriel Garcia Marquez in 100 Years of Solitude. And I think that Mon uh, has, I don't know how direct the influence is, but he is a bit of a model for that kind of writing. He, in some of his other books, he shows us how a culture evolves over several generations and how a family uh, passes along uh, certain traits and traditions and so on and how closely personal life interacts with the political life, for example, of Germany or of Europe as a whole. Um, I think his exploration of the unconscious is very important for a lot of later writers. I really like the Canadian author Robertson Davies. And uh, Davies has all of these Jungian characters who who see symbolic forces operating underneath the reality that that is uh, on the surface. And I think that owes something to Mon's Magic Mountain. Um, so I think those who are interested in sexuality, those who are interested in history, and uh, those who are interested in psychoanalysis, they can all draw something from Mann's Magic Mountain. In The Magic Mountain, Mann described how destructive forces such as greed, power, and lust can undermine reason. I think Mann's biggest contribution was his sense that uh, disease is always there, disease both as actual illness and also in a sense as a moral unease that you might feel. And that we're constantly trying to repress it and ignore it, but ultimately you have to face up to it. So I, um, I am extremely susceptible to nostalgia um, of Arcadian, you know, echoes. Um, and so when I think, you know, I do think, oh man, like culture was more sophisticated uh, in the past in some places, tea and you know, high dialogue and things. And it seems like, you know, Mon both um, celebrates cultural expression at its height, but he, he also punctures that idea that there there is a kind of utopia in the world, that like no matter where you look, human foibles are there. And, you know, you can think about the symbol of disease in a number of different ways. Um, but what's powerful is like you can't, you can't wish it away. Yeah, for sure. Illness is a very, very powerful metaphor. It goes all the way back to Greek tragedy. The feeling that there's something wrong in the way the world is oriented is seen as an illness causing famine, causing uh, a plague. And, you know, we've totally experienced that this year. We felt that uh, the the real illness has, of course, killed many people and is horrible. Uh, but at the same time, it's also almost a metaphor for a bigger social problem, which is our inability to respond to the illness and our political paralysis, unwillingness to face up to the facts, unwillingness to listen to expert opinion, skepticism about everybody's opinion. And all of that was there in its 
its own form back when Mon wrote The Magic Mountain. Mon showed audiences hard truths about humanity's shortcomings. And contrary to our prevailing cultural faith, Mon argues that we can't just use reason to bulldoze our way through those human constraints. Instead, we need to acknowledge our weaknesses, understand them, and even embrace them. I think Mon helped us to understand where the First World War had come from and what were the forces in European culture that were worth preserving and what were the forces that were very, very destructive. I think Mon gave us an alternative to the fascist Nazi view of culture that would say, actually, here's a German culture that's worth preserving. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.